Welcome back to the Magic Story Podcast. I'm your host, Harless. And I'm your other host, Natalie. The Magic Story Podcast recaps the fiction story behind the card game, Magic the Gathering. We summarize the story in easy-to-consume episodes and add a bit of our own flavor text along the way. So whether you've been playing Magic for years or you just discovered it yesterday, there is something here for you. If you'd prefer to listen to the audiobook versions of our stories... We do those too. Check out the written stories of everything we go over here, as well as those audiobooks at mtgstory.com. Well, without further ado, we are quickly approaching the end of season six, which has been following the story of the Lost Caverns of Ixalan. I can't believe we're almost through this season. It's crazy. It's been a wild ride from zealous vampires to whole cities existing beneath Ixalan to a mushroom infection spreading through the core. We have seen a lot this season. Not to forget an entire species, the Malamet, right? Yeah. But today's episode is the finale of the main story, episode six, and it's written by Valerie Valdez. Shall we head into the multiverse? Let's do it. Join us as we head into the multiverse. Okay, so a quick recap of where we left off last time. I mean, things were getting real in episode five. We met Aklazots, who was the bat god, and Vito, our zealous vampire leader, was transformed into a bat-like vampire himself. And he and the other transformed bat vampires alongside Aklazots waged war against Chamil, who is the sun within the core, and actually closed these metal pieces around Chamil and turned it into a perpetual night. And during this battle, which clearly weighs in the favor of vampire bats who are able to see in the dark, uh, we saw Watley's cousin Inti die during the battle. I'm still not over it. I'm so sad about this one. Me neither. I... Uh, that was a pretty devastating death uh, to have to see. And uh, all during this, so, you know, we got the Thousand Moons and Watley and Waita fighting in the sky against these bat vampire with Aklazots the god closing Chamil. Like, it's it's pretty intense in the sky. And we have Malcolm and Breaches on the ground who had escaped the Mycotyrant only to lead the horde of mycoids into the core. So we now have two battle lines, one in the sky and one in the ground. We picked today's episode up right where we left off, in the battle amidst the core. And we are behind Watley's eyes, who has just lost her cousin, Inti. The battle raged in the sky, Sun Empire and Oltec warriors chasing the twisted Dusk Legion soldiers through the roiling detritus of the Cosmium Reef. On the ground, Watley cradled the broken body of her cousin, kneeling in the blood-spattered soil of a land far from home. She had failed to protect him. Death was a warrior's constant companion, but no one eagerly fell into her embrace. Ugh, okay. Valerie Valdez stabbed me right in the feels, like right away in this episode. Ugh, big time. Now, while Watley is mourning Inti's loss... Vito arrives because of course he does. Of course. He can't. He he's such a baddie. I Vito, if you guys can't tell, 
you know, like Natalie had this like kind of intense like frustration with Karn when we were in <laughs> Dominaria did. Brothers. I War. did. I was so frustrated and, with Karn. And I feel like I have that with Vito where I'm just like, I hate you, Vito. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like, like there's no there's no middle ground for this character. No. It's just like, I don't like you. Like, period. I, I don't do like not you. like Vito. If that has not become terribly clear, I don't know how else to say it. But anyway, Vito arrives and Vito declares that Wally will be Aklazata's next sacrifice and that the victory of his great god is at hand, as in is imminent, right? Like is right around the horizon. Oh, and he's very now, preachy well, about this too, by the way. Oh like my he's gosh. like, the so victory dramatic. of my god is at hand. You must surrender yourself. Like he's very veto. Pontification, what? pontification, yes. pontification. Yes. yes. <laughs> uh. <laughs> now, Watley rises to her feet to fight off Vito. And I mean, she's not happy right now, so... I mean, watch out. Good Vito. luck to you, Vito. Yeah. Good luck to you. Now, Vito strikes out with his lance and Watley dances away. And all the while, Vito drones on about ruling beside his master and the faithful will serve him in all eternity. So he's still preaching. I love how Watley thinks to herself here. Will he never cease talking? And I am so right there with you, <laughs> Watley. Like, <laughs> I would love for Vito to please stop talking now. Like his zealous preaching at this point is like fingernails on a chalkboard. It's just, just stop talking. <laughs> this dude. Okay, so while she's dancing away from Vito's lance, trying to find the upper hand for this fight, she extends her powers. She reaches and calls out into the expanse. She called to the mountains and the forests, the fields and the valleys. More voices replied until her head swam with the effort of containing them all. And the magic is so powerful that Watley buckles to her knees and Vito, arrogant Vito, takes this as surrender like he actually thinks that she's kneeling before him like, what a donut, what a ding dong. But as he strikes out again with his lance, Watley pushes to her feet. Now Vito leaps into the air, still declaring that Aklazots has risen. His eternal reign is inevitable. Oh, Vito, really? I feel like this guy would be like a theater major who only does like Shakespeare and just but like only the villains, <laughs> only the villains. And he's just walks around with like the skull in his hand, just being like, oh, I'm dramatic. Here's my monologue for today or for this hour. I right? So he has it. a monologue like yeah. every hour on the hour. <laughs> I so see All right. it. We're, we're giving so much hate to Vito, but I but I mean, come on. He just took out E.T. and that is so not cool. OK, yeah. so the ground begins to shake and Watley replies, only death is inevitable, even for you. And at this moment, the dinosaurs rush into Watley's aid, a flying dinosaur barrel straight into Vito, followed by Pontwaza. And more and more dinosaurs just pour into the core from the land and the sky. And Vito is flanked from all sides as are all the other vampires. And at this point, Watley picks up Vito's fallen lance as he struggles against the dinosaurs attacking him and with a great cry, rushes forward and impales Vito with the lance. Yes! That's right. <laughs> she got him. Now, I never thought I would slides. celebrate a death. Sorry. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yes, finally. <laughs> I know, I feel... I feel kind of like a monster right now, but I'm also like, he deserved this. He deserved it. He super he deserved, so deserved this. It. Yeah. Yes. 
Okay, so the lance actually slides through his plate armor, piercing his vile heart and pinning him to the ground. Hooray. I just have to admit, this death is so cathartic. And I actually love that there's an art piece in the set that depicts this very moment. It's called Watley's Final Strike, and the art is done by Martin Neal. It's a green instant card, and the flavor text is just chillingly good. Inti's name will grace our poems and histories for generations. Yours will collect dust forgotten in this cave. Ah, it's so good. And in the art, you can actually see, um, it's really cool the way they framed it because you have Watley striking Beto right front and center. But in that background, you can see all those dinosaurs that are represented in the story as like kind of flanking him and, and flanking the other dinosaurs and keeping anyone from being able to stop Watley from doing this. And it's, she's in such a position of power. He's on the ground. He's cowering. His arm is up in like fear and in defense. And she's just so calm as she slides that lance right in to his, uh, quote, vile heart. It's, it's such a good card. I love it. It is. It is. Now, Vito whispers out his last declaration at this point. He says, Aquazot's why have you forsaken me? And then the red light in his eyes dies. And though Watley has destroyed a dangerous enemy to the Empire, she still feels hollow because Inti is gone and killing Vito, it's just not going to bring him back. Now, the dinosaurs around Watley come to her side to comfort her, including Puntlaza, of course. They nuzzle her with their snouts and Puntlaza trills at Watley, crooning like a father to a hurt child. Thank you, Watley murmured, touching the light of the threefold sun where it gleamed on her armor. But the battle was not over. So Watley commands the dinosaurs to go up to the Cosmium Reef in the sky. And then those on the ground towards the mycoids rushing into the core from the ground. And from here, we switch to Malcolm's perspective in the middle of this battle on the ground against the mycoids. He feels pretty guilty that he brought the mycotyrant here to this peaceful land, especially now that the fungal army spreads across the core like an infection. Quint is still conversing with Abuelo, the Echo, who says that they should bring back other Echoes to help them, including Abuelo's wife, Abuela. Now, Quint uses his magic to do just that, using the kipu Abuelo had said was Abuela's, and a teal bubble of light forms above the garment and it rises to hover at Malcolm's shoulder height. And I'll read this from the story. The light stretched and roiled like a miniature storm. Then from one blink to the next, it became the figure of a woman. The kipu hung from her neck over her poncho. Wrinkled lips stretched in a smile as she peered up at Abuelo. There you are, she exclaimed. I thought that Titan got you. Abuelo chuckled. It did. Oh, I suppose it did. She looked around. What happened to the other Camon? I don't know, Abuelo said. But let me introduce you to our new friends. Everyone, this is Abuela. Abuela sniffed the air. The mycotyrant nears. We must gather the other echoes. So Malcolm goes to investigate a light over the hill. Remember, he can fly. He's a siren which the light Abuela declares is the arrival of the gardeners. What can they do? Malcolm wonders to Abuela. The steward answers, her voice rich with purpose. Since the beginning of the Quiet Age, they've been developing practices to fight this enemy. We had hoped to never need of them, but we wish to be prepared. 
and various gardeners produced different objects, a necklace, a headdress, a small crystal mask, a serrated blade, and more. Spirits burst into existence, anchored to the items. Some were less solid, some less human, but all bowed to the steward and awaited further orders. The steward asks for their assistance while a thousand moons fight in the sky against the vampires. The echoes reply with their confirmation. Even Amalia steps forward here and says that she can help too with her powers. Kellen stands beside her. I just want to take a minute to say like, it doesn't say it in the story in this moment, I don't think, but how excited Quint has to be that there is like essentially an entire force of people here who are trained in bringing back echoes and utilizing them to their advantage in like different scenarios. Like how freaking cool. Yeah. (laughs) Which is, I just, I had to point that out. Which is um, his whole like Lorehold college in Strixhaven. That's all what it's about. And that's where Quint is from, right? Like he is, that's, he's from Strixhaven and his college of Lorehold like it, it's all about the his like history and his magic is about bringing people back and being able to appreciate a time past and now we are seeing it in power. It's just it's really cool. I bet I bet Quint is ecstatic right now. I think he's showing some restraint here. You know, I think he's listening to the lessons he's been taught on this journey. But I bet you inside he's he just wishes he had a notebook in about 20 days, 20 months, maybe to just sit there and talk to each one and get their, you know, yes. hear from them on, oh, on totally. what their life was like. <laughs> all right. So may the gods guide us all. Stuart call says save Jamil and save the core. A roar of approval replied. And the members of the newly formed army set out. And at this point, Malcolm flies up to investigate where exactly the mycotyrant is at this moment. And he confirms that the fungus has spilled entirely into the core now. And the eerie green glow of the mycotyrant, which is being held up by two giant titans, is really easy to make out because, you know, it's glow in the dark. And he tells the others the mycotyrant is headed this way. And at this point, Amalia, amazing, talented Amalia, takes out her map and draws across it, creating a giant canyon splitting the land, which temporarily stops the mycoids advance toward them. And Malcolm observes to Amalia that the coalition would appreciate magic like that. And this is from the story. Kellen gripped Amalia's elbow as she wavered. You're amazing at this, he said. Amalia's cheeks darkened. Was she blushing? Vampires didn't blush. What a precious little fledgling. Oh, okay. So is this just me? Or I'm getting the hint that maybe Kellen and Amalia like each other? Like, or... I think so. It reminds me me of those cute little crushes we get in high school, seeing that cute person in our class, but we are way too shy to ever ask them out. And I'm just with Malcolm here. This is just precious. So anyway, there is still a giant mycoid army heading their way. And even though Amalia's powers had halted them, it doesn't stop them. The mycoids begin to make bridges with their own bodies, spanning across the cavern to get to the other side. No, they held each other, grafted together, forming a thick fungal chain. One of the flying creatures dove into the space and grabbed the last mushroom, carrying it to the opposite side. More of them piled on, and soon a thick bridge spanned the crevice. So much for that plan, Malcolm thought. So flying mushroom creatures begin to attack him in the air, and he retreats back to the ground to regroup with the others. 
the Echoes, the Gardeners, the steward called them, begin to form a vanguard. An echo with a face like a bear's skull floated up to one of the smaller walking mushrooms, which paused as if in confusion. Silently, the echo slid into the creature and vanished. At first, nothing happened. Then the mushroom shuddered and jerked, veins of bright teal splitting its skin. It dissolved into blue smoke as if consumed by invisible fire. The echo reformed and drifted to the next enemy. Other echoes followed suit, and one by one, soldiers in the fungal army dissipated. They turned themselves into a sickness, Quint explained. It only affects the mycoids. That's what they call the mushrooms. Okay, I just, I gotta say, that's really freaking cool, right? Like, uh, I'm a bit of a goblin girly, if y'all haven't figured that out. So, like, (laughs) you know, the combination of really cool mushrooms and really cool ghosts who have like the ability to fight the mushrooms like this is so up my alley I love this so much but anyway okay as Malcolm points out there are just so many mycoids and there's only a few echoes who can hold them off now other echoes break off into groups of three and they're holding these staves with rings of pink light that emanate from the cosmium crystals in the wood with a shout the gardeners lowered their weapons and the magic sliced through the air toward the mycoids Every fungus the light touched burst into flames. Dozens of the creatures fell writhing to the ground, then lay still, disintegrating into ash. Okay, yeah, that's even cooler. Right? It's so cool. If you get a chance, you should check out the card Thousand Moons Infantry, which is a common in the set, because it has art that depicts these rings of pink light that we're talking about in this scene. And it is just very, very cool the way that it's like, I don't even want to say rippling because that's not the right word. It's like almost like, buzzing off of the weapons yeah like, i imagine it's that it so sounds cool. like a buzz like if like yeah if the, me if too magic had a noise it would be like a buzz like i like i feel like when you move it it has like a whoosh kind of yes you know that's like how the I gym itself it. makes this kind of like buzzing sound but anyway okay this magic still is not enough to destroy the mycoids or even reach the mycotyrant across the cavern and malcolm has an inkling that the mycotyrant is the key to destroying the rest, basically the heart of the nest, so to speak. So he turns to Breaches here, in the heart of the melee. Big boom, Breaches exclaimed. Think it can kill the mycotyrant, Malcolm asks, and Breaches grins and nods. From his pack, he retrieved the weapon he'd acquired in high and dry as payment for a debt. The metal tube was about the length of a forearm, with an elaborate vine pattern etched on the surface, a jutting leaf a trigger and flower petals molded to the end. Malcolm had been surprised when the previous owner agreed to turn the thing over. Once he'd seen it in action, however, he'd concluded he would rather stick with cannons. Thanks very much. It was more destructive and unreliable than it was worth. Those qualities would likely serve them well now. Okay, okay. that is a lot of like very in- intricate logical thinking from Breaches. From a character who says like two sentence answers in all capital letters. And he's like, he like realizes that this is a bad idea the whole time, but he's still <laughs> saying, let's use it. I love him even more now. I love breaches. Like, I think, I think the way that he speaks is deceptive. I actually think this goblin is yeah. very smart. Um, and <laughs> and he knows that this is his moment. Um, I'm so excited. I'm so excited to actually maybe see Breaches be able to do his big boom. So anyway, Malcolm grabs Breaches and together they take to the sky. 
We'll probably get one chance, Malcolm says. Don't miss. And Breaches just glares at him indignantly. The Titans holding the Mycotyrant start to take notice of them, and many of the Mycoids begin tossing spears and themselves turned into weapons toward them. And while Malcolm is dodging them, he has a moment of wondering how he's going to tell this story to his friends back at High and Dry. Like, who would even believe this, I right? Know, like, this right? is insane. <laughs> now, Breaches attempts to aim the weapon in his hands towards the Mycotyrant, but a Mycoid flying dinosaur swoops towards them, causing Malcolm to jerk out of the way, and Breaches nearly drops the weapon, but he catches it with his tail, that handy-dandy tail. However, now the end points straight at Malcolm. And he just yells out, hey, careful where you aim that thing. Hit the blasted mycotyrant already. Fly better, is Breach's retort. Breaches manages to situate the weapon with his feet so the flowery tube faces the mycotyrant again. And Malcolm begins to say, warn me before you... But it's too late. But it's too late. It is too late. <laughs> Smoke and sparks billowed from the back of the tube. From the front, an enormous ball of molten fire sprayed thick as pitch and just as sticky. The force of the weapon's magic sent Malcolm and Breaches flying backward, and Malcolm nearly dropped his goblin passenger before riding himself. Everything in the fireball's path was leveled. The mycotyrant had only a moment to see its death looming before the projectile tore through the nearest titan, hitting it squarely in the body. It fell from its web to the ground, pinned beneath the fiery projectile, which splashed flames in all directions. Every fungal creature around it shrieked in unison, some collapsing like puppets whose strings had been cut. Others, struck by the sticky fire, flailed their arms, running around or rolling on the ground. A few launched themselves into the fissure, turning the shadowy space into a pit of flickering flames. The once fertile earth laid bare, scorched, littered with lumps of ash and the bodies of the fallen. Malcolm begins to hope that they might just be winning. But right as he thinks this, a storm of dark energy erupts from the distant mountains. Red bolts of lightning flash in the sky. Shouts of concern ripple across the battlefield. And up in the Cosmium Reef, bats shriek like nails across metal. As the dust cleared, the casing around the sun shifted apart slowly, almost imperceptibly. Most of the land remained shrouded in shadow, but shafts of light shone through as the strange dawn broke. So... Chimil is free. The Oltec begin to cheer at the return of the light, but there's a cost. A huge temple has risen from the mountain face in the distance. It's Aklazotz's temple, and a red glow emanates from its inside. In a final command, Anim Pakal orders the rest of their forces to eradicate the mycoids from the core and the thousand moons to root out the remaining Cosmium Eaters from the sky. Amalia and Kellen join the thousand moons as they head toward Aklazotz's temple on the mountain. So Quint makes this offhand comment that this is going to be an incredible paper, which makes Waita laugh hysterically. Malcolm had never seen her stoic demeanor so completely altered. She looked younger, happier. Poor Quint seemed confused, but he cracked a smile too. Breaches tilted his hat back with his tail and sighed happily. Big boom. I'm happy to. Breaches <laughs> finally got to do his big boom, and he totally killed the mycotyrant. Yay, Breaches! You did it, bud! <laughs> I love him. I that he did All like right. a sigh, like a happy, big boom. Oh, big boom. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. All right, so the battle turns in heavy favor of our heroes here. 
The Cosmium Eaters have retreated from the sky now that Chumil is free from the metal cage of darkness, and the mycoids are burnt to a crisp, a delicious mushroom and crisp. Mm. However, the mystery as to what happened in that temple that has risen up from the mountain remains, and Aklazots is still out there to contend with, wherever he is. Now we switch to Amalia, who fights on the steps of the Temple of Aklazots alongside the Thousand Moons, and the bodies of the Cosmium Eaters litter the steps. Acrid smoke from the fungal fires mingled with the clouds of dirt from the landslide, forcing Amalia to squint and blink away grit. Dinosaurs roamed the terrain, their feathers and claws and teeth caked with blood, as if patrolling or hunting. Kellen fins off a vampire with his glowing light swords. Amalia remarks that he's surprisingly good with those swords. And I really like that we've seen Kellen go from stumbling to even use the swords, right? To even get them to like work to decapitating vampires. Like we're seeing some growth here. And that also like makes me kind of think that maybe this wasn't the first omen path that Kellen walked through, right? Like it made me think that too. Yeah. Yeah. So she and Kellen ascend the steps toward the temple. The warriors carried torches and glowing crystals while Amalia's floating candles remained tethered to her belt, flickering madly. Darkness churned above, a shadow darker than night, like a stain on the air, but the red flashes had stopped. Amalia dreaded what they would find. She had to keep going, to bear witness, to carry the stories back home. Amalia, Kellen, and the Thousand Moons enter the cave-like temple, where they see the amphitheater-like room where Aklazots had been imprisoned and then freed. Amalia smells so much blood, and she is devastated that there was so much death. There is no one here. The temple completely empty save for those who have died for the sake of Aklazots. A thousand moons had apprehended one of the Cosmium Eaters and questions them, where they reveal, Aklazots is free, the Cosmium Eater said. He gathers his children, and soon he will end the fifth age and begin a new age of blood. All who join him will feast on the weak for eternity, and all who oppose him will be consumed. No, Amalia whispered in horror. Where is Aklazots? Anim repeated, grabbing the man's chin. He snapped at her, and she recoiled. He is beyond your reach, the eater replied. But you will not be beyond his for long. And Amalia at this point can't hear anymore, and she leaves the temple, beside herself with this horrible realization. Aklazots has escaped the core. She fears the schism between the vampires has been made worse, and now Aklazots is free to pursue Queen Meralda, St. Elenda, her family. This is really not good. But luckily, Kellen is there, and he approaches her with kindness. I'm sorry, Amalia murmured. I was raised to believe God was distant but benevolent that he charged us with a sacred mission to serve and pass along his gift. Now I find he's... he's... Not what you expected? Kellen asked. Amalia nodded. I feel as if I've been living a lie. I might understand that more than anyone else here, Kellen offered her a sad smile. You still have a choice, though. You're not locked into a destiny someone else planned for you. What can I do? Go back to Torrezon and warn Queen Miralda of all this? How can I choose a mere woman over my own god? Amalia stared at the temple, the door broken like her faith. Kellen seemed to consider that one. If you don't like what your god is doing, maybe you should find another one. 
Another god? Amalia laughed bitterly. You make it sound easy. It's probably tricky, Kellen said. Maybe Quint can help. He's smart, and all those professors at the university he talks about are probably even smarter. You could talk to them. Other worlds. Other gods. Other vampires. It was almost more than Amalia could imagine. But then she'd never expected to find a whole world beneath her own, inside it, like a seed in an avocado, a pearl in an oyster. She'd found something inside herself, too. Not a pearl, perhaps, not yet, but a grain of something that might become harder and stronger. Will you tell me about your gods? She asked Kellen. We don't have those where I'm from, Kellen said. But I can tell you about the Fae. Next best thing, I think. Together they returned to the path, walking away from the ruins and back towards the growing dawn. So we switch from here back to Waita's perspective. It is a week later from all of these events, and another delegation of the Sun Empire arrives from the surface down to the core. The dead still burns in pyres, but Chamil has been restored to her previous glory, shining brightly in the underground sky. The River Heralds have returned to their underground ocean, and the Coalition, Malcolm and Breaches, had gone with Amalia and Kellen back to the surface. So using Quint's eavesdropping spell, because of course he has an eavesdropping spell. <laughs> Another reason I just love Quint. Like, yeah, yeah. It's like, he's like, just like, I have, whole I have a way deal... to eavesdrop on this conversation if you want to want to listen in. Yeah, and I love the way that, exactly, the way that he presents the idea is just like so casual. Like, she's kind of like watching Watley and Caprokti and she's like not sure what's going on and, and Quint is just like you want to use my eavesdropping spell <laughs> <laughs> and so using this the very clever eavesdropping spell she and Quint listen in on the Sun Empire talking with the leaders of the old tech so they listen to Watley and Caparokti argue with each other and we find out that Aklazots threatens the entire surface with his malice and that the Sun Empire seeks war with the Legion of Dusk Watley is still in mourning, not wanting to seek out new battles. But when Kaparokti almost kind of blames Watley for Inti's death, it's the last straw for her. She grows hostile and leaves the room, dark eyes blazing with menace when she says to Kaparokti, do not look for me again, champion, because you will find me. Ooh. Yeah, she's mad. So after Watley leaves the discussions, Stuart a call. Anim and the Sun Empire continue to discuss what they should do next to address the threat of Aklazots on the surface. They also fear remnants of the Mycotyrant have spread beyond the core too, now that Aklazots had created a direct path to the surface where the fungal infected can follow. We must continue our work to purge them as the gardeners tend to crops, the steward says. And everyone here agrees that they have to move against the forces on the surface. Waita thanks Quint for letting her eavesdrop, I think Waita and Quint are actually friends at this point, which I love. And then follows Watley, who sits at the edge of the lake. Watley glanced at Waita, then back at the water. They stood in silence for a few minutes, waves lapping at the shore, Pantlaza chasing insects that fluttered from flower to flower. I wanted to be a warrior poet once, Waita said, when I was much younger, before Arazka was found and claimed. How simple that time seems now, Watley murmured. The stone does not feel each drop of rain, but still it is worn away. She smiled weakly at Waita. Perhaps an even more important destiny awaits you. Waita shrugged. Not everyone has to be a legendary hero. A candle isn't as bright as the threefold sun, 
but it still lights a room. Okay, that's so cheeky. That's so cheeky. Because in magic, there are creatures and there are legendary creatures and not every creature can be a legendary creature, but each creature is still important to the game. Anyway, I'm, I just, I loved that. I thought that was so tongue in cheek. Anyway, please continue. Yeah. And also poetic for Waita to say yes. this. I mean, she, she is a warrior poet, if not in title, but definitely in practice. I mean, yes. that is, that is a very cool statement that she just made and very true. You know, she's, she's a poet and she is. This, I think this uh, whole sentence and, and the way that Waita approaches this with such wisdom is when Watley gives Waita the Seneschal's blade, which is Inti's blade. And it had been encrusted with a cosmium crystal at the pommel. And Watley just says it was what Inti would have wanted. Waita hesitated, then reached for the hilt. I am honored more than I can say. I will keep him safe. I hope he keeps you safe too, Watley said a flicker of amusement lighting her face. You're not dead yet. Stay strong, little sister. And with Watley's parting words to Waita, we realize that there is a civil war on the horizon. Watley is to travel to Otapek, the sister to the Sun Empire, to try and stop the impending violence. And on this very somber note, we switch again to Malcolm, who has returned to the surface and the city of Sunray Bay, only to find it deserted with the same evidence that had ransacked downtown in its fight against the mycotyrant. Not a single ship awaits at the docks. And this is unusual, okay? Like, this is a city of ships. There is not a single ship at the dock. There is not a single person wandering the streets. Everything just left. Like, you know how when, when like, people will find, like, an abandoned house and it's and they'll say, like, oh, it looks like they just left. It looks like they just walked away. That's what it is here. It's just as if everyone vanished into thin oh, air. Oh, no. Oh, no. So yeah, this is real bad. This is real bad. No. So Malcolm turns to Breaches and declares that they have to go to high and dry and warn them if it, too, hasn't already fallen to the mycotyrant. Wow. Okay. So the fears about the mycoid infestation spreading to the surface was correct. And it's moving faster than they ever imagined. All of Sunray Bay... Like all of Sunray, yeah. that was a massive city. This is yes. not good at all. And unfortunately, we get no answers because we switch again to Amalia. And she and Kellen have traveled to an island in the middle of the lush Ixalan Ocean. Are you certain this is the right place? Amalia asked. Mostly a feeling, Kellen said. My luck hasn't failed me yet. Not when it really counted anyway. So they traverse through the forest on this island, which is wild and untouched by civilization. And they finally come across a strange circle, coruscated and swirled with lights. It was taller than a human and just as wide, and it floated above the ground without shifting or moving, as if it were a painting affixed to a wall. Cal whispered, that's it, an omen path. You're sure? Amalia asked. Where does it go? I have no idea, Kel said. The last one brought me here, but this one might not be so forgiving. You think this could lead to somewhere worse than a cavern full of angry goblins and jaguar folk? Kel shrugged. I wish it wouldn't, but if wishes grew in fields, we'd all farm. They stared at the swirling portal in silence as the sun baked their heads. 
Kellen asks whether Amalia is sure she wants to go with him, saying that wherever this omen path leads them could be worse. But Amalia says she's ready. Kellen takes her hand, his skin pleasantly warm. She could feel his pulse through his thumb as it sped up slightly. Which Oh, oh my God. That's so my God so they cute. are so cute. Oh, they like each other. They so like each other. And without another word, they leap through the omen path and, quote, everything changed. What does that mean? Everything changed? I know. I want to know, too, but we don't actually get answers to that because we switched to Quinn's perspective right after what? this. What? I know, I know. But I can say we know Kellen's story isn't over, right? Small preview into our next season, but we're going to get to find out where he goes. I think we I think we all know that at this I'm, point. So I'm don't so worry. Excited. There's I'm more. I'm so excited. All right. So back with Quint. He is investigating some old ancient ruins inside the core. And he's been talking to the didacs and searching for more answers, as an archaeologist does, in this place called Colony's End. And he's currently alone and trying to learn what the didacs had called colonizers. Their stories describe giants whose great dark vessels appeared in the sky, blotting out the light of Chimil and then caging her within a metal prison. Sometimes legends grew in the telling, but given that Quint had seen the prison himself, he was inclined to believe the Oltec weren't exaggerating. They'd also warned him to stay away from Colony's End because it was dangerous and hadn't been fully explored. He knew how to be careful, though. He'd survived his delve into Xantafar when Asterion hadn't because he'd taken better precautions. So I just facepalmed. Yeah. <laughs> I just I just facepalmed reading that. I was just like, oh, Quint. That is just asking for trouble. That is just asking for trouble. I mean, it's great to be a hero. I get it. You're like, I can handle myself. I can handle anything. But tell people where you're going. <laughs> Have we not learned that? Have we right. not learned that you need to tell people where you are going so that you don't wind up like Karn, trapped in a collapsed cave for a for month? months. Months. Okay. (laughs) Well, Quint keeps going deeper into Colony's End, climbing up this ruin along the cliff face. And he eventually comes across evidence of the Coin Empire here, which, remember, is what he'd been looking for the whole time. This is why he was here. And he begins to map the ruins, which seem to be sealed up like a tomb. There's no water. There's no mold. And there's no signs of habitation whatsoever. So he investigates deeper and deeper still letting his curiosity drive him. He turns a corner and stops, blinking in astonishment, because unlike every other room, this one held a long row of massive tanks, their glass fronts shattered, shards littering the floor. So right when Quint turns to leave, thinking to himself he's discovered more questions than answers by coming here, he spots a tank that is not destroyed and still intact. He approaches it, because of course he does. The interior was cloudy, opaque. Was there anything inside? With his handkerchief, he swiped at the surface, then cupped his hands to the sides of his eyes and pressed his face to the container to get a better look. With a deep clang, the tank lit up. Quint scooted backward nervously. What had he done? What was happening? Inside the container, smoky air swirled, then slowly dissipated, revealing the body of an enormous creature. It was so tall, Quint couldn't see its head from where he stood. Only thick, gray-skinned legs and hands that ended in claws. The creature's fingers twitched. It flexed them, stretched its hand, and then curled it into a tight fist. Or, Quint thought, perhaps I should go. Now. Right now. 
Uh, good thinking, Quint. You should have done that a while ago. But, you know. Okay, so, but what did he find, though? What was that thing in the tank? Was it the coin empire, maybe? Honestly, I have no idea because it doesn't tell us anything. I bet the magic community is going to come up with tons of theories, though. And I personally have tons of questions, but we're just not given any answers. And we actually end this episode with two more narrators. Why are you pausing? Because it's the Myco Tyrant. The Myco Tyrant is one of our narrators. Wait, what? One mind was all, and all minds were one. Some bodies required direct attention to function, while others acquired sufficient autonomy to act on their own, nonetheless acquiescing to the will of their progenitor. Some were more stubborn and refused to obey. So be it. More bodies could always be formed or assimilated. Temple ruins in a jungle on the surface swarmed with vampires, clearing vegetation and building a camp. One of them struck a swollen fungal sack with its blade, releasing a cloud of spores that settled on its skin like flies. Soon, it would join the body that watched from behind the trees, as would the others. The pirates from downtown, who had escaped now, wandered Sunray Bay, their faces covered. They passed from one body to the next, each giving a different point of view, a different influx of knowledge and sensory input. Their refusal to assimilate was puzzling and frustrating, but so it went. They did not understand the efficiency to be gained. The battle against the Ultec had taught them a valuable lesson. Sometimes stealth succeeded where force failed. A new body stood on the deck of a ship, such useful things, ships, and watched as it approached high and dry. This one retained its original form in most ways, except for its eyes, covered by dark lenses. Better to hide and plan and spread. With enough time and care, everyone would succumb. Everything would be joined, controlled. Already the light of the new sun warmed the molds and caps spreading across the surface. For every stalk burned away, more would grow. Progress was inevitable. It only required time and patience and more bodies. That's all. No big deal. Carry on. Nothing to see here. So our final narrator is none other than Aklazots. And he's just as long-winded and glory-obsessed as you can imagine. He puts veto to shame in that. Oh my gosh. Is that even possible? (laughs) (laughs) It is. It is. Aklazots is hidden away inside of a ship that is headed to Torazon. He aches to spread his glory, his reign, equating the vampires awaiting him there as sheep that await their shepherd. And there is one vampire he craves above all others. Vona Deedo, the Antifex. Vito had fallen and would be forgotten. But Vona, he would set her at his right wing to see that his will be done. And once he secured Torrezon, they would return to Chimil and obliterate her at last. The ship creaked and rocked as Aklazots opened his single, baleful eye, shrouding the hold in red light. The sacrifices shrieked and moaned in terror, blood pounding in their bodies like a syncopation of drums. Such sweet music they made for him. He would almost miss it when they were silenced. And that is how the season ends. I am so like end of end of episode and end of season. Yeah. That's how we end. 
I am. I, I was when I read this, I was so speechless. I just I couldn't believe that we ended with not only the Myco Tyrant. Yes. Where where the Myco Tyrant has like the mycoid infestation has completely obliterated the surface, at least all of the coalition. I mean, Sunray Bay, it, we got proof that it's in high and dry. I like. Wow. That that is an incredible revelation. And yeah. also Aklazots is free. Aklazots is here and he is going to bring the reign of of his like he's going to bring the reign of his godhood to to the Dusk Legion and all vampires. A lot seems to have been unleashed in Ixalan. And yeah. I have a feeling, I just have this feeling, I don't think Ixalan is ever going to be the same again because no. of what was unleashed in the core. I don't see how it could be. Well, the fact that they even know the core exists means that Ixalan will never be the same, right? Like, yes. Can you imagine, like, if we discovered that at the center of Earth, there was like a whole other colony of people that we were descendant from, that some of us were descendant from, like, how crazy would that be? It would change everything. It would change everything. And so I think that there's a lot, but you're right. There's also like the gods that have been unleashed and like the the knowledge, right? The knowledge that there are people at the core, that you can go to the core, that the people from the core can leave. Certainly life for the people on the surface and in the core will never be the same just with that knowledge. And also the Myco Tyrant is just really creepy really brutal like i really i kind of like so this creepy. villain it's it's just very like very scary because it's insidious do you know what it reminds me of phyrexianization yeah that's what it reminds me of it's like it's it's gross it's it, it's like hive-minded in that same way and also like disturbingly unemotional and and that's yeah. i think what got me about this creepy Myco tyrant mm-hmm. is that it like when saying things like progress is inevitable like how is that not phyrexian yeah right? to me and i could be totally off base here but it feels to me like the difference it in the two is that the phyrexians like each you you kept your individuality in the sense that you kept the things that made you an individual that made you better fighter or a better researcher or whatever that was but like Phyrexia almost celebrated your uniqueness because it made them better like they would take kind of like your best skills and apply it whereas the Myco Tyrant just wants everyone to be the same that's the vibe I'm getting at least and we don't know much yet the Myco Tyrant takes everything it turns it turns you're not even a person once you become once you are assimilated as the Myco Tyrant says you become rotten on the inside, right? Like you literally. The thing that is the most cliffhangery to me. So there's a few things I want to know. One is like Amalia and Kellen, cute, 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 cute. What's going to happen with them? Yes. But also yeah. like, I just feel like there were so many like incredible women in this story that I just love. And I want to know more about like, you could you could give me a story about Watley for like the next three years. And I'd still be like, I want to know more about Watley. Like she's just amazing. Right, I right. loved Waita. I really want to know what's next for her what what she's going to do after this but the biggest cliffhanger for me is what did quint freaking find in that tank yeah. that's bigger than what? than a loxodon yeah what what was it in the tank what did they bury in colony's end like a tomb bury yeah. and everyone said quint don't go there what is it 
I like I had so many questions as to what Quint discovered and was really disappointed we didn't get to find out. But I, know. I mean, I'm I'm hoping that there's some good theories out there and I'm hoping maybe one day we get the answers. But we're I guess we're just going to have to wait and see. Just going to have to wait and see. And speaking of Watley, has Watley forsaken the Sun Empire? That's a really good question because she's going to not necessarily the rival, although it could be argued that it's the rival empire. Right. But she is going to the sister empire that is also against the war against the Dusk Legion to try and sway Kaparokti and the Sun Empire from going to war. I mean, that's that's very poetic on her part. But is it turning her back on the Sun Empire? Has she kind of forsaken it in 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 her stance, right? It, it's just, she definitely is not seeing eye to eye with Kaparokti anymore. She's not going to stand beside him after what he said. I just, I have tons of questions as to what this means for Watley. Yes, me too. Well, we actually have an epilogue to this story, which we will dive into next week on the podcast. So Sahili has actually been on the surface this whole time, remember? And we want to know what she's been up to. Now, don't forget that you can read today's episode and so many more episodes at mtgstory.com, including the audiobook versions of these episodes narrated by our own internal wizards. We hope you liked today's episode just as much as we did. So much happened and we have lots of questions awaiting so many theories by all of you out there on the fate of Ixalan, how it will unfold from here. I'm certainly itching to know too. We are coming to a close for our season though, where we will have to say goodbye to Ixalan for now and look to other planes and other stories, following Kellen, of course. Stay tuned for our next episode, coming to you right around the corner. But until then, have, have a magical, magical day! day.